Chasing Lights Chapter 13 Life is unfair. What can we do about it? In Anchorage, there weren't a lot of sidewalks, and for most of the winter, the shoulders of roads were covered by snowbanks. Like Los Angeles, but for different reasons, no one walked. But I didn't have a car, so I didn't have a choice. It was cold, of course, but with the teenager's metabolism accustomed to winter, I managed well enough, even as my shoes filled with snow. Drivers were probably surprised to see a lone walker alongside a four-lane road. And at one point, I walked past a police car parked on a wide bit of shoulder. A cop suddenly appeared behind me and put me in an arm lock. His partner then came up to me and patted me down for weapons. You don't look like you belong here, he said after asking where I was going and where I came from. Uh, what's wrong? I asked. But they didn't answer. They looked at my ID, gave it back, and then let me go. That random event bothers me. To start with, the cop was right. I didn't belong. Like a lot of people, I'm still trying to understand where I do belong. I think that might be an easy question for some, but, but not so much for me. It's also clear, especially now, that my being white and upper middle class helped keep me safe. If I was black or native Alaskan, the encounter with the police might have been more dangerous. And that knowledge is hard to carry with you. What should or can I do about that? It would be logical to get involved somehow, to be in protests or become an attorney to protect those unfairly judged by the system or just do something. I wasn't sure what, though, so I didn't do anything except judge the police and everyone else that doesn't understand how the system is rigged. Instead of fighting for justice, I resented for justice. Not really the most effective thing to do. At the same time, I have benefited from a system tilted towards white men where I get the benefit of the doubt. With two jobs, I had more money than ever before. It wasn't much, but to a teenager with a room and board paid, it was enough to feel rich. Whenever I wanted, I could buy a soft pretzel from the place next door. I could buy some new clothes. I could buy my own stereo system and still have money left over for college. To a 17-year-old, that's a lot. With money in my pocket, I felt like I could do anything and go anywhere. It was a great feeling. And one day a woman walked into the store and immediately said to me, I want a stereo. Now, most customers are a bit more coy than that, but I opened up the sound room and invited her in. I started my usual patter about the different options, but she quickly interrupted me. I want that one, she said, pointing at a cassette player. Well, starting with that, I then recommended a few options for a receiver, speakers, and a turntable. She wasn't listening. Instead, she pointed, almost at random, at the ones she liked. She didn't 
seem wealthy enough to buy such an expensive system so quickly. No one really did that. You know, really, I suspect that people enjoy a slow process and uh, getting a level of confidence that they didn't make a mistake, but not her. The woman had no problem with the price. She asked if we did home installation. Uh, we didn't, but I wanted the sale, so I said I would come by after work. Sold, she said, and then pulled out an envelope from her purse and paid in cash. Then, as now, it's uncommon for someone to pay almost $1,000 in $100 bills, but in Alaska, people working in oil, commercial fishing, or gold mining would often work on a cash basis. And after work, I got a ride home from my mom and then drove myself to the lady's house with her stereo still in boxes. She lived in a small, broken-down ranch house in a crowded neighborhood. The front yard was littered with toys, and there was a car being worked on in the street. I walked up to her door and was let into the living room with my boxes. The lady cleared some junk and a full ashtray off a chair in front of the window. Put it there, she said, pointing at the chair and laughing before taking another drag off her cigarette. Shut up, she shouted to someone in another room. The stereo guy is here. I opened the boxes, then stacked the components on top of the chair. The speakers fit on either side on the floor, and I plugged in all the cables. I turned to the lady and asked if she had a record or cassette we could play. She didn't. So I turned the receiver to a radio station and turned the volume up a bit. It sounded good. As I left, the lady was yelling at someone else in the house, and I drove a few blocks away, then pulled over to the side of the road to process what had happened. Whatever excitement I felt about making the sale was gone. In my mind, she shouldn't have bought a stereo system in the first place. She didn't even have records. The house was dirty and seemed to be falling apart. Money spent on the stereo and any commission for me was probably money that would be useful elsewhere in her life. I felt guilty and responsible, but I didn't do anything. I'm not sure what I could have done, I, and I wanted the commission. Selling was fun. I was pretty good at it, and learning how to do it better, you know, more than once I thought I could do this forever. There was something about manipulating or at least nudging people to buy. It was a performance. It was an attempt to understand someone in that moment. It was about pleasing. Now, to some degree, I was psychologically built to work in sales. But what I did had an impact. All that playing around with people's desires, emotions, and fears has consequence. A day comes when a piece of sophisticated electronics with a dual flywheel drive and Dolby noise reduction is just another piece of junk in a cluttered living room. I realized that I wasn't really in control. The pictures I painted of a better life using the points given to me by the manufacturers and their marketers weren't real and never would be. All that talk and connecting I did with customers led to nothing. It'd be nice if I could say that as I sat by the side of the room, I decided to never sell again. That would have been a great time to devote my life to truth and beauty. I didn't, but I thought about it a lot. After the usual intensity of high school, my final year was quiet and often disconnected. My friends and I were all trying to figure out what happened next, jobs, college, leaving home. We didn't really know what was in front of us. 
and had limited information to make an informed decision. Looming over many of us was a fundamental reality that Alaska doesn't have a lot of jobs to offer. Anyone with ambition knew that this was likely the last year we would live there. I was considering four potential colleges. I had spent five weeks at Northwestern the summer before and at the University of Washington in Seattle, we had visited as a family once, and two arts conservatories, one at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the other at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. They seemed promising, but I had never seen them. Fortunately, my father had a meeting scheduled in Atlanta, Georgia. It was the perfect opportunity for us both to tour the schools together. I flew to Atlanta a day or two after he did to meet him at the uh, Atlanta Hartsfield Airport. And after the flights to Chicago, I felt like I was getting the hang of flying around. The Airline Deregulation Act was signed three years before, and the effects were just starting to be felt by Alaskans. Plane tickets to everywhere in the lower 48 were suddenly cheap, but there was a catch. No direct flights. To make the flight reasonable, I connected through four airports to get to my destination, meaning travel time that approached 20 hours. I slept most of the time and vividly remember two hours spent in a kind of haze very early in the morning in the St. Louis airport, wandering through empty hallways to my connecting gate. Atlanta's airport was so new and clean looking, in some ways nicer than any other airport I had seen, but the terminals were remarkably homogeneous. The same stores with the same displays and the same signage were repeated every hundred feet or so. It was a disorienting dreamscape of sameness. In the decades since, as Atlanta Hartsfield has continued to grow, age, and modify, navigation is a lot easier for travelers. But whenever I go there, I still miss that dreamscape for some reason. I found my father at the gate for our next flight to North Carolina. He looked happy to see me and full of excitement about the trip. I doubt that I admitted it at the time, but walking arm in arm with him to our plane woke me up and filled me with joy. A quick flight to Greensboro and a rental car to Winston-Salem. It all went quickly. We drove right to campus, which was on a hill near the original Salem village from the 17th century. The campus was not very large. Originally, it was a small private school. In the 1960s, it became a conservatory for dance, music, visual arts, and theater, and even to the eyes of a kid from Alaska. It seemed small and far away from cities. It was comforting. It was also beautiful. Rolling hills, kudzu vines in every vacant lot, and bits and pieces of the old industrial south quietly decaying in place. Unlike anything I had known before, the layers of the past all seemed to be on display at once. I didn't understand them, but I could see them, feel them, and imagine what it must have been like 20, 40, 100 years ago. We walked around and bumped into a student I knew there. He excitedly hugged me and introduced himself to my father. It didn't take long, but before his next class, he gave us an insider's tour of the place and then brought me with him to class while my father went to the motel. What struck me most during our visit was the green. I had never seen ivy covering a wall before. An abandoned train track ran on the north side of campus in a gully that went down the hill towards town, covered with kudzu vines. It probably hadn't seen a train for decades. 
An arched tunnel under the road that went to the back entrance had a curtain of kudzu almost to the ground, while an old rail sign now covered looked like a leafy topiary giraffe standing tall outside the entrance. It was a romantic living ruin, waiting for the day when it might come back to life again. We flew to Pittsburgh next. My father had grown up there, so our visit was as much a trip through his memories as it was an exploration of Carnegie Mellon. Most of the steel mills that turned the midday sun black in his childhood were silent now. The sky was clear and blue and the surroundings lush and green. Together, we visited his old neighborhood, his school, and downtown where stories of his father were shared. Carnegie Mellon's campus was more crowded than North Carolina and less green. Concrete, but no kudzu. Back home in Alaska, I had to make a decision. Leaving home wasn't easy or cheap. I'm not sure where it came from, certainly not my parents, but I never felt like I was worth the trouble. But decisions had to be made. First decision, college or conservatory. My dad wanted me to go to the conservatories, Carnegie Mellon or North Carolina. In his mind, those schools were more like graduate schools. If I wanted to act, I should do it to my utmost. He had a good point, but I was interested in other things too. And I thought I might enjoy a real college. Perhaps it would expose me to other professions that I might like even more. I was really interested in journalism, politics, philosophy. Conservatories didn't have a lot of courses in those areas. College then seemed like the smart choice, but what if it wasn't? What if college was the safe path where I ended up not focusing on anything, just sampling a little bit of everything? That's my natural default after all. How could I possibly gain in-depth skill or knowledge in a place like that? And what if I wasn't smart enough for the academics. My public high school was okay, but it didn't require any real rigor to earn A's. And there were plenty of other kids around the country who really earned their grades. They didn't use my strategy for figuring out the least amount of effort required to get a grade for any given class. I believed that most students didn't charm their way through school like I did. I was bright, but I hadn't applied myself. I worked only enough to appear accomplished. On the other hand, there was one area where I had applied myself with whatever ability I had. Whether it was in a radio station, a sales floor, or acting in a play, I spent every moment available to learn how to act. It was scary. It was uncertain. It was exciting. I went to a conservatory. It may not have been the best choice. I've, I've regretted it a few times over the years. How much of a person's life is determined then by choices like these made with incomplete information and biased reasoning. Because of that choice, there were opportunities I never saw. Because of that choice, I was rarely properly credentialed for most of my career. Because of that choice, I learned how to make things work without knowing the right way to do it. Because of that choice, I learned how to innovate and sometimes how to lead others. Good and bad, and perhaps they balance each other out. Perhaps there's no other way to make these kinds of choices. It comes down to, I feel this now, so I'm going to go for it. I still think I would have liked living on a college campus somewhere, going to lectures with autumn leaves falling from trees, late night study sessions, and talking philosophy with friends without apology. That would have been nice. 
but I made a different decision when I was 17. I ended up in a conservatory in the 1980s when it was considered acceptable for teachers to routinely sexually harass and abuse students, where it wasn't strange that the guy across the hall from me was dealing cocaine out of his dorm room, and where taking academics was declared a distraction by the dean of our school. Most of my classmates stopped taking them. I rebelled. I took them, including the philosophy class I always wanted to try. Academics, then, as rebellion. Strange idea, but it worked. Instead of fulfilling a requirement, I owned my learning in defiance. All of us in the class were sticking it to the man as we dove into Descartes and Kant. Philosophy was transformed for us into rock and roll. What we learned changed us the same way that Bob Dylan influenced an entire generation. The liberal arts, for me, were forbidden fruit. I've often thought that I made a mistake going to an arts conservatory instead of a real college, but maybe not. Learning, for me, happens against the wind, not with it. Would I have learned more in an environment designed to deliver academics? Or did ideas, modes of thinking, history, and literature become more personal and more vital because I had to fight for it? To go through with my decision, I had to audition for the school. At that time, all the conservatories banded together to hold auditions in different parts of the country. And for me, that meant another plane trip, this time to San Francisco. Instead of going alone, the friend I interviewed on the radio took a few days off to join me. To save money, we stayed in a spare room of a friend of my parents who was finishing graduate work at Stanford University. We took a long bus ride into the city early in the morning, then walked around all day like the bedazzled tourists that we were. Now, just like Chicago, the height of the buildings was inconceivable to me. There was so much going on on the streets below and so many ways for us to get lost over and over again. We tried out BART, the Bay Area subway, which looked like a science fiction movie to us. I, I didn't know it at the time, but we must have shared that opinion with George Lucas, who made his first science fiction movie, THX 1138, while attending USC. Several scenes were filmed in the unfinished subway stations. We got on a train, and rode just a couple stops at what seemed to be blazing speed. We stepped back up into daylight a mile away. The future just happened to us in a subway. Mostly, we just tried to keep moving. When we stopped at one point on a park bench to eat lunch from McDonald's, we were hassled by a homeless person. He asked for money, and when we said no, he started yelling at us. We picked up our lunch and moved on, frightened by the strangeness of someone begging for money. In Alaska, we never experienced that. We weren't prepared for cities then, but I've spent the rest of my life in them since. There are more and more people on the streets trying to survive and asking for money. Sometimes they're drunk or high or somehow strung out, but over the years I learned that they are all fundamentally frightened. Of course they are. They are vulnerable, without resources, hungry, cold, and they have nowhere to go. Simple things like finding a bathroom or a shower is almost impossible. 
If someone on the street just stays alive, that's a heroic accomplishment. They frightened me, but underneath their yelling is their fear as well. The standard response to a beggar is to look away. I'm just as guilty of walking by and pretending that I'm entirely too engrossed in a bus billboard to notice. And somehow that feels safer than looking, acknowledging, or risking connection. I give money to beggars somewhat regularly, but never feel good about it. It doesn't make up for all the fear that we both feel, and the problem remains unsolved. Now, the audition took place on our last day in the city. It seemed like an imposition on our vacation, but we went anyway. It took a while to find the place, as it was far from downtown in a nondescript two-story building in the Castro District. It was packed with auditioners, and everything was behind schedule. We impatiently waited in a hot, stuffy room, inhaling the panicked nervousness of all the actors going over their lines in their head. And outside... The sun was shining. As the waiting times went beyond a couple of hours, my friend became impatient. I didn't blame him. This was precious time for both of us. And finally, I was called into another room for my first audition, which went reasonably well. And after that, I had another wait for a second audition with another school. At some point, I stupidly asked the woman auditioning how much longer the wait might be. I told her I wanted to know so I could continue touring the city. That really bugged her. And when I finally got to audition, it didn't go very well. This was the first time I was in a big city without adult supervision. The simple act of repeatedly getting lost, then finding my way back was exhilarating. The variety of people on the street, the buildings and the traffic were unlike anything I had known before. I fell in love. A few months later, the acceptance and rejection letters started to come in, but nothing from North Carolina. More weeks went by, and I eventually gave up on going there. But then I was called by North Carolina's dean of admissions, and he asked me if I wanted to come in September. That was it. I was going south. But there were still a few months to go. One morning, I woke up frustrated with myself. To me, it seemed that I had no special skills. I didn't fluently speak another language. I didn't play music or dance. I couldn't calculate difficult mathematics problems. Anything I could do, for some reason, didn't seem very special to me. So it occurred to me that I should fix that. But what should I learn? Was there something amazing that I could do? Was there something magic? To my adolescent brain, there was an obvious solution. Learn how to juggle. A friend of mine had an instruction booklet on how to juggle that he lent me for the weekend. I didn't have any tennis balls, but there were three oranges in the kitchen. I grabbed them, then stood in front of a couch in the living room. And every time I dropped an orange, it landed on the couch, so I didn't have to chase it all over the room. That's, that's the theory, anyway. Many times the oranges were tossed across the room and into walls and other furniture. And all day, I practiced. And by dinner time, the oranges were soft and pulpy inside, but none of them burst. Somehow, I was juggling a little. And by the end of the week, I was able to juggle as naturally as walking or breathing. And suddenly, I could do something that was impossible 
Useless, of course. No one ever felt a lack in their lives if they couldn't juggle. But more important than the juggling itself was the knowledge that if I was willing to stumble, to drop things, to look like a fool, I could learn the impossible. Now, one of the constant tasks at the record store was to sort the records in their bins. Customers, when browsing, would often put records back out of order. So I was working on the M bin one day, Madness, Madonna, Marion Faithful, Marvin Gaye, Meatloaf, Metallica. Wait a minute, what is ACDC doing here? I looked up with the record in hand, ready to take it across the store to the A bin, when I saw a friend from school standing across from me. We chatted for a bit. I hadn't seen him in the store before, and I didn't really know him that well. I didn't think he was a big music fan. He wasn't. He was there to talk to me. I'm running for school president, and I was wondering if you might help with my campaign. That surprised me. But he probably asked because the year before I had run for vice president. It was a hopeless effort, as my opponent was not only well-known and liked by everyone, but had been involved in student government for years. I had no qualifications, no mandates, and was not popular. The real reason I entered the race, though, was to give a speech. All the candidates lined up on stage in the auditorium and presented their case one at a time to the assembled student body. I had been writing speeches in my head most of my life, and this was a chance to make clear everything I thought wrong or unfair and how great things could be if we only had the courage to change. What a thrill. And for a few moments, I stood at the podium and spoke my revolutionary truths. I imagined that students sitting in their seats would leap up when I finished. They would cheer, chant, and pledge their fealty to my cause. They didn't, but nor was I greeted by silence, thank God. Instead, a polite round of applause, just like the one my opponent received, covered the dead air as I returned to my seat. I lost the election, but I got to give a speech. And a year later, someone asked me to help. I was happy to. I called another friend who went by the pen name, The Blade. He and I both wrote for the school newspaper. He was a fan of graphic novels, one of which was the original Blade. You know, his, his name and his actual personality created some cognitive dissonance as he was a hardworking, if somewhat mischievous, Mormon kid. And over time, that dissonance diminished as he explored his nom de plume more in depth. The Blade was a perfect partner for this. We had to disrupt student politics to give our candidate a chance to win. And like me a year before, he was outranked in experience and popularity. If he campaigned the same way as his opponents, what he lacked would be more apparent and what he could offer would be overlooked. The conversation had to change. The image of what everyone thought a president was had to be replaced with something new. No one had done it before, and it was probably impossible. But it was so easy to do. That I didn't expect. We put together a new narrative, the chosen ones. Now there's a select group of people who get all the student government positions because the teachers favor them. Chosen ones don't care about regular people. They're just padding their resumes to go to their fancy colleges. Isn't it time that regular people stood up, got counted, and wiped the smug grins off the chosen ones' faces? Our candidate isn't 
a chosen one. He's one of you. He's going to blow up the way things are done in student government. Do you want to be a part of that? When our candidate had to give his speech, we put on a real show. The candidates were all told to sit in a row on stage next to the podium while the audience filed in for the assembly. The Blade and I, dressed in dark suits and sunglasses, walked on stage and then escorted our candidate off stage so he didn't have to watch the other speeches. The Blade then sat in his place while I remained standing behind. We both looked straight out into the audience as still and straight-faced as we could manage, drawing focus the entire time. And occasionally we would check our watches or cup our ear as if listening to a wire like an FBI agent. It was a crummy thing to do to the other candidates, but the audience loved it. When it was our candidates turn to speak, the blade stood up and we both slowly went over to the podium where we searched it thoroughly for anything dangerous. We finished, stood on either side, and then the blade said, it's clear, hit it. That cued another friend in the sound booth to start playing a recording of the national anthem while the candidate walked up to the podium. He turned to me, I handed him his speech, and he began to read. Somehow, we got away with it. The audience loved it. We made fun of the proceedings while holding up our candidate as someone who was in on the joke. After the speech, we canvassed the entire school, focusing on areas where the unpopular kids might hang out, encouraging them to vote for the first time. With an outsider running, there was a good case we could make to them that going to the polls was in their interest. They went, and our candidate won. It wasn't hard to do. It seemed like a joke and a way to frustrate the establishment. And our candidate was a good guy who ended up doing his best as a student president, despite the animosity that his campaign created. But I didn't feel good about it in the end. We told a joke about politics. And instead of laughing, students voted. What if something like that happened in the real world? <laughs>